Uh, If you have a copy of God's Word, if you could grab it and turn with me to Judges chapter 4. That's that's in your Old Testament towards the front of your Bible, right after the book of Joshua. Uh, This fall, we have been studying the Old Testament book of Judges, and Judges is one of those books uh, that when you read it and you see some of the stories and you see how crazy they are, uh, they leave you scratching your head, perhaps, and thinking, why is this in the Bible? Uh, what do we do with these stories? Uh, and you'll hear me say this uh, throughout our series. I've said it before, but Judges, in a nutshell, is a story about God's rebellious people. And notice I said God's rebellious people, because it's about Israel. But at the very same time, it's about God's relentless grace. Judges is in the Bible because it's here to show us and to tell you to cheer up. You're a whole lot worse than you think you are. But at the same time, it's here to show us that God is better than we think as well. That He's more committed to us. uh, That He is in covenant with us and loves us more than we could possibly imagine. Not only that, is that we have a God that doesn't sit up in heaven with white gloves on distancing himself from the affairs that we find ourselves in and the things that we, uh, and the messes that we make of our lives, but God actually comes down and moves into our neighborhood and gets involved with us and meets us there wherever we find ourselves and rescues us and brings salvation to us. This morning we come to Judges chapter 4. In Judges chapter 4, and this is important, Judges 4 and Judges 5 actually go together. They deal with the same event. Chapter 4 does so from the perspective of an historian. Chapter 5 does so from the perspective of a poet. This morning we will focus on Judges 4, uh, the perspective of the historian. And I want to warn you, uh, this is another crazy story. This is another story, much like last week, that has its fair share of gore, as you'll see towards the end of this passage. And I need to say this, and I'll say this a couple of times through our series, uh, but now is a good time to remind all of us uh, not to get so caught up in the details and get so caught up in the gore that you actually miss the point. That you actually miss what God is trying to teach us. Ralph Davis, who's a commentator and has done some good work on the book of Judges, he says it well. Listen to this. There is not a moral commentary on the actions of jail. Our ethical bones cry out for some hint. But the writer includes no overt judgment, neither rationalization, condemnation, or exoneration. Perhaps... Our text moral questions are not the central concern of the passage. That's very well said. And that is something that we need to keep in mind all throughout our study of the book of Judges. Because we can get so caught up in the deception of jail that we'll see, and the way she kills this man named Sisera, that we actually miss the main point. So with that in mind, follow along with me as I read God's word. This is a a lengthy passage, and it also, there's a lot going on. And so, uh, hang with me and, and focus in. 
And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sowed them into the hand of Jabin king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hegoam. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Labadeth, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you go? Gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the Kishon River with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. She said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak said, or called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. And now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites the descendants of Hobab, the father of Moses, father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak of Zanam, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots, telling us again, there's an emphasis here, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Herosheth Hegoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, get up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down again to Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army of Herosheth Hegoim and all of the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword, and not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, and do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, And she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I'm thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent. And if any man comes to you, comes to you and says, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. And she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground. 
while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. And so he died. I sure hope so. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man that you are seeking. And so he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with a tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin the king of Canaan before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin the king of Canaan until they destroyed Jabin the king of Canaan. I'm worn out. Are you? <laughs> let's pray. And let's ask God for help with this passage. Let's pray together. Father, we do need clarity. There is a lot happening in this passage. It's difficult. Um, lots of people and lots of things going on. And we need you to come and make it clear. And apply it to our hearts. And so come. We ask through your Holy Spirit. And clarify this for us, and, but most importantly, show us the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So, there is a lot going on in the passage. Uh, it's lengthy. Uh, there's lots of people. And so, let's just ask, uh, let's just cut to the chase. And what is this passage about? What's the point of this passage? And in a word, the point of the passage is salvation. This passage is about rescue. More specifically, Judges chapter 4 shows us that God is always at work in the world. He's always at work. He's taking, and this is what we see, and we're going to see it as we walk through it, what seems to be random events. He takes Israel's sin. He takes their failure. He takes the detours. Uh, he takes uh, the, the setbacks that they, experiences, that they experience, and he weaves all of those things together to accomplish his purposes in the world. He weaves all those things together to bring about salvation and rescue for his people. And if we understand this morning what this passage is teaching us, it will change our lives. At the very least, it will be a tremendous encouragement to us this morning. God is always at work. I love Psalm 121. It says, the God who keeps Israel... The God who keeps Israel never sleeps nor slumbers, but he is always at work seeking your good and his glory. So you know what that means? If God is always at work and he's at work for your good and his glory, that means that we can trust him this morning. That we can trust him in the midst of our suffering and consequences that we experience for our sin. Number one. That means we can, secondly, um, trust Him when we don't understand and when things seem confusing or overwhelming. And thirdly, we can trust His provision that He has provided for us. And so let's look at these three points. Uh, Because God's always at work, we can trust Him in the midst of our suffering. Look at verses 1 and 2. Here's the broken record. Here's the cycle beginning yet again. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord sowed them into the hand of Jabin the king of Canaan. And so the cycle is beginning again. Jabin, it's interesting, just a couple of notes, because these things will become important later. Jabin never really makes an on-screen appearance, we could say. 
He remains off screen in the background of the story. Instead, who does make an on screen appearance is his general, whose name is Sisera. Look at verse 2. He sends Sisera to do his dirty work. And remember, chapter 5 is commentary on chapter 4. And in chapter 5, verses 28 and 30, we learn that Sisera is a pretty rough customer. That when he would defeat his enemies in war, he would take the women and treat them very cruelly and rape them. Not only that, he had a cutting edge army. He had a powerful army. 900 iron chariots we saw mentioned a few times in the story. And Sisera and his forces oppressed Israel, it says, for 20 years. Look at verse 2. This shows up all throughout our study, and so we're going to deal with it this morning. But we've got to deal with this. But notice who it is that hands the people, God's people, over to the enemy. Very clearly it says that God is the one that hands them over. God in His love, and yes, notice I said love, hands the Israelites over to the consequences of their idolatry and gives them to the Canaanites. And I know that that raises an enormous amount of questions for you as you sit here this morning, but I've tried to deal with some of those things in the past couple of weeks in our series. But in a nutshell, uh, you know, your temptation is to say, well, here's the angry God of the Old Testament again, and I want to focus on the God of love. Well, his anger here, it's a loving anger, it's a jealous anger, like a parent has for a wayward child that they see going down the wrong path. God loves his people. And so he refuses to let them go on their own way. And so before we go there, think about verse 3 with me. Look at it. So he hands them over to their oppressors. And then verse 3, then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. So do you see the result? You see, the, you see what's going on here? It's actually the suffering and consequences of their sin. That is the very thing that God uses to soften them. And to lead them to repentance and cause them to cry out to the Lord and to run to Him for help. And so is it not possible that God sometimes allows His people and allows you to feel the consequences of your sin for your own good? Is it not possible that God uses suffering and consequences to bring things into your life that you need to grow and to mature and to become more like Him? And the Bible's answer to that question is a resounding yes. He uses suffering. He he lets us feel the consequences of our sin. Remember the smelling salts in order to wake us up and to stir us And bring us to our senses so that we can see how destructive sin is in our life. And so we can bring and run back to Him with everything that we have. Brian Habig, um, he was a former RUF campus minister. And now he's a pastor in Greenville, South Carolina. And he's from uh, the great state of Mississippi. And he tells this story, it's a true story. Uh, about uh, that, uh, that he had heard or he knew this woman, but this woman in a small town in Mississippi, one stoplight kind of place, uh, and she had this friend that she grew up with, and they grew up together, and at one point, one of the women left this small town in Mississippi and became a Catholic nun. They stayed in touch over the years. The other lady stayed there in Mississippi. They stayed in touch over the years, and the lady in Mississippi 
became very ill uh, and was in her last days. And so she writes to her friend, the Catholic nun, and says, I'm not doing well, and uh, I would love to see you. Well, the Catholic nun makes the long journey uh, to Mississippi, and she knocks on the front door. And when she gets there, the maid comes to the front door, uh, this woman's maid that's helping take care of her, and her eyes get enormous when she sees this Catholic nun. And she says, yes, can I help you? And the nun says, my friend so-and-so has, has fallen ill, and I'm here to take care of her and, and see her. I care about her very much. And the woman just kind of stares at her and says, no, no, she feels fine. She's fine, I promise. There's nothing wrong. And the nun kind of looks at her and says, what do you mean there's nothing wrong? I got word from my friend to come check on her. That she was at the end of her life. And the nun says, oh no, she's getting better, I promise. And, uh, or, uh, or the maid says, she's getting better, I promise. And so the maid steps out in the front door of the porch, takes off her apron and goes, shoo, shoo. <laughs> and shoes this Catholic nun off of the front porch. <laughs> Come to find out, the maid had never seen a Catholic nun before. And she thought it was the angel of death coming for her employer. You see, the nun was coming as a friend to take care of her friend in a time of need. But the maid thought that she was coming to bring harm. Friends, God sends consequences into our lives. And as a Christian... When those things come to your door, those hard things that God brings into the front door of your life, it's very easy for you to believe that it's something that God is sending you to bring you harm and to hurt you, and it possibly feels like He's trying to kill you. Is it not possible that even though it looks scary and feels scary, that those things that God is sending you is actually a friend to help you in your time of need? A friend to help you grow and learn and mature and redeem you. So how are you experiencing the consequences of your sin this morning? And as you experience those, do you see those as something that God is bringing to your life in order to harm you? Or do you see those things as a friend and a way God is trying to redeem you and rescue you? God is always at work even in your suffering, even in your sin, don't run. Embrace them. Secondly, so if God's always at work, we can trust Him with our consequences of our sin and suffering, but we can also trust Him when things don't make sense. Look at verses 4 through 8 with me. Again, lots going on. Deborah enters the scene. And Deborah, in this story, she's the judge but she's unlike any other judge in the book of Judges uh, because she actually has a courtroom. She actually settles disputes. She's a wise counselor. People come to her and she settles social disputes and legal disputes and relational uh, disputes. And that's what makes her different than all the other judges because she leads from character and wisdom, not sheer military might like all the other judges. She's not a warrior. She recruits a warrior, Barak, to come and lead the war for her. But she's also a prophetess. 
What is a prophet? Well, a prophet was someone that would go before the people and say, Thus saith the Lord. And so she would speak God's word. And a prophet's words were considered to be on the same level and have the same authority as God's word. And so she summons Barak and says, God has given you a word. Gather 10,000 troops, go to the foot of Mount Tabor, and the Lord will give Sisera into your hand. Think about what's being asked of Barak. You know anything about military strategy? You're right if you think this sounds like a suicide plan. (laughs) Gather 10,000 troops, go to the foot of Mount Tabor where you can be easily surrounded by 900 chariots and be completely destroyed. And so it makes sense why Barak seems a little hesitant at first because this is crazy. This makes no sense, which is why he says to Deborah, remember Deborah is holding God's word as the prophet. It's why he says, if you go, I'll go. If you go with me, I'll go. Then look at verse 9 at her response. She says, I will go with you. But the road on which you were going will not lead to your glory. For God will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. At first glance, when we're reading this passage, this sounds almost like a rebuke for his lack of faith. It is not. Hang with me and I'll, I'll tell you why I don't think that is. Barak knows that he needs God's word with him. And notice Deborah doesn't seem offended by his request. And so Deborah is not, or I'm sorry, Barak is not refusing to obey. He's just simply refusing to go unless the word of God goes with him. He's essentially saying, there's no way, there's no way that I'm going to do this and fight this battle unless I have the presence of God with me. Look at verses 9 through 16. Deborah goes, and what happens? Well, the unthinkable happens. Little old Israel defeats Sisera, his powerful cutting-edge army with 900 iron chariots. The natural question now is, so how does something like that happen? Remember chapter 5. Commentary on chapter 4. And in chapter 5, you know what happens? Just the right time. Remember, God's always at work. At just the right time. And in just the right place, God sends a storm. God sends a monsoon. And the river rises and the valley's flooded and becomes becomes muddy. And guess what that means? The chariots get stuck in the mud. The chariots are rendered useless. And that's why, look at verse 15, it says that on that day, not Barak, (laughs) the Lord routed Sisera. Friends, God is even at work controlling the weather in order to rescue you and to rescue his people and deliver them. So they defeat the foot soldiers, and Sisera, at the end of this scene, is running for his life. Let's talk about some application. Two notes, two things to note from this passage. Notice that Barak submits and follows God, even though it seems crazy. He follows God's word, even though he was probably thinking at the time, I don't have a good feeling about this. 
He follows God's word because he knows God's promises and he trusts in those things more than he trusts his feelings and his circumstances and even when it doesn't make sense. So here's a question for you. Where is God calling you to follow him and trust him right now this morning? Where in your life, even when it doesn't make sense, even when you, from your perspective, think this seems crazy, Secondly, notice it's easy to miss, but did you notice that he doesn't seem to care? He doesn't even blink when Deborah tells him that a woman is going to get the glory for this military victory. Don't let that pass you by. Back then, women didn't have, uh, they didn't fight uh, military campaigns, they were considered inferior. And Barak, who is a warrior, shows incredible humility by giving up his glory to a woman without hesitation. And so the question is, how is this possible? How can you trust God even when it seems crazy? And how can you show that kind of humility? Well, because Barak knew that the world didn't revolve around him. He knew that God was in charge. He knew that God was a covenant-keeping God and that God kept His promises and He was okay with not making everything in the world about Him and without Him being the center of every story. Why? Because he trusted that God was always at work for His good and for God's glory. And that's why when you get to the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 11, which is known as the Hall of Faith, has all of these Old Testament uh, people in it that showed great faith, and out of all the people in this story that's listed, guess who's listed? Barak. Because you see, faith at its core, you think, what, do you think uh, the quality of Barak's faith when he was called to go fight this army, do you think it was strong or weak? I think it was probably pretty weak, and he was scared to death thinking, I don't know how this is going to work out. You see, faith is not about the quality of your faith. Faith is about the object of your faith. Faith at its core is about taking the eyes off of yourself and putting them on God. You see, Barak here is in the hall of faith because instead of putting confidence in himself, he turned and put it on God. And so here's the question for you this morning. What about you? What this morning, when life doesn't make sense, Do you trust God or do you become a control freak? When life doesn't make sense, do you trust God or do you become a control freak? You know what I mean? When life doesn't make sense and you're like, I don't know about this. If you're like me, I want to grab life by the horns and saying, I'm going to make this happen. And I don't know about trusting God, but I'm going to make sure this works out in just the right way. Do you do that or do you trust God in the midst of uncertainty? Can you rejoice when people get the glory and you don't? Are you okay with not being in the middle of everything? Are you okay with not knowing everything? You see, your answers to those questions, believe it or not, will reveal what you believe about God and what you think about God. They will reveal whether the object of your faith is in Him or whether it's in yourself. Okay, so we, God's always at work. We can trust Him with the consequences of our sin and suffering, even if it hurts. 
We can trust Him in the midst of confusion and when things don't make sense, like what He's called Barak to do here. And we can trust Him in His provision. Lastly, look at verse 11. I don't know if you picked up on this, but the story's kind of moving along, and then you get verse 11, and did anybody else think that was random? All of a sudden, inserted into the story is Heber the Kenite. What does that have to do with anything? Why is this detail about his change of address important? That small detail, remember, God's always at work. God is in control. And so Heber moved away from his own people. Okay? And he moved to this place near Kadesh so that at just the right time and just the right place, he could strike up a treaty with Jabin and Sisera, because, and that meant they were on good terms. And so when Sisera is running for his life, looking from somewhere to hide, he just so happens to come up on the area of Heber the Kenite and his wife jail. And he thinks, I'm safe. These are not Israelites, and that's why the author makes a point to tell us over and over, Heber the Kenite, the Kenite, the Kenite. They're not Israelites. And so he thinks he's safe. And he goes in, and Jael takes him out while he's asleep. And then your question is like, well, whoa, wait a minute. I thought they were on good terms. That they had made a treaty with one another. Well, going back to chapter 5, verses 28 through 30, Jael knew what kind of man Sisera was. And she most likely had friends or family that had been raped and killed by him. And she wanted him dead. She wanted justice. And so she took this railroad spike and she drove it into his skull. And in verse 21, we learned, which I think I, the Bible sometimes the things are put in, I think, to for comic relief, because it's so intense, but it says, so he died, as if there were any doubt in our minds. (laughs) And look at verses 22 through 23. Barak comes to the scene. He sees what has taken place. And as he sees what has taken place, he most certainly had thought two things. And the first one was, God is good. And God keeps his promises to his people. And so he's assured that God is committed to his people on the one hand. But on the other hand, he's most certainly thinking, that should have been me. Why? Well, because think about, he was completely outmatched. 900 chariots surrounding him. And by God's grace, he gets the victory. But also, most certainly, he's thinking it should have been me because he was an Israelite. And go back to the beginning of the story. They again had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so the death that Sisera received, as barbaric and terrible as it was, was actually what Barak and all of the Israelites deserved. See, the nail being hammered into Sisera's skull, is that graphic? Yes, it's graphic but it is a picture of God's grace because it's a picture of God's justice and that God must punish and deal with sin. But at the very same time, we see a picture of God's mercy and commitment to His people because He accepts substitutes 
And instead of killing Barak and the Israelites, he kills Sisera instead. You see that? And Barak, did he deserve it? Absolutely he deserved it. But he got mercy and grace. How can this be possible? Well, because thousands of years later, someone else grabbed a hammer and some railroad spikes. And they again drove it into someone else. But this time, the hammer and the railroad spike were not used against someone who was guilty. They were actually used against someone who was innocent. That hammer and the railroad spike didn't go into someone's skull, but it went into the hands and feet of Jesus as he was hanging on a cross. And friends, is that graphic, is that in some senses gory? Yes, but just like Barak and Sisera, it is a picture of God's grace to you. A graphic picture of God's grace. It's a picture of God's kindness. Because God comes and says, I will not give my people what they deserve, but rather I will accept a substitute. And I love Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. Remember, God's always at work. At just the right time. God sent His Son, Jesus, into the world to redeem those under the law. And to become a substitute for God's people by taking the death penalty that you and I deserve. This is probably going to come out and maybe sound a little harsh this morning, what I'm about to say, but I love you enough to say it. You're guilty. Every single one of you in this room, me included, stands guilty. And every single one of us needs a substitute. Do you realize that this morning? Whatever you did this weekend, perhaps uh, you said some really awful things to your spouse, even possibly on the way to church. Or some really awful things to your children on the way to church or perhaps this weekend. You need a substitute. Maybe Jesus is not as exciting as he once was for you. Maybe you long to return back to when you were uh, just become a Christian, when Jesus thrilled your soul, but now he's become boring to you. You need a substitute. Parents, you need a substitute this morning for the ways that you're raising your children. Children, youth, you need a substitute. For the ways that you treat your parents. For the ways that you treat your siblings and your friends. Some of you have done some things that you're really ashamed of, that you cannot shake, that you cannot let go. You need a substitute. You need a substitute this morning for the best day and best devotional that you've ever had. And you know what? I need a substitute for this sermon this morning. Because oftentimes I care more about whether you think it's good than I do about whether you know Jesus and love him more. You're guilty. I'm guilty. We're even more guilty than we thought. And here's my question. This is what we're going to end here. What are you going to do with the guilt? What do you do with the guilt? 
Do you try harder and say, I'm going to buckle down and do better? And I'm going to do more religious activities and try to clean up my life? Or do you let Jesus be your substitute? Friends, God is gracious and He provides a substitute for you this morning. In Jesus. Come to Jesus this morning. And let Him be your substitute. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your goodness to Your people and not giving us what we deserve. Forgive us for not trusting You and for trying to control our lives and not walk by faith. And I pray this morning that You would help us in the midst of our trials and maybe things that we're experiencing as a result of our own wrongdoing or sin. Or perhaps it's just brokenness of living in the world. Would we... Uh, trust you in those things and know that you're working all those things in our lives because you love us and you want to be with us and you want us to be more like you. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen.